The uh, reading is taken from 2 Samuel 11, 1 to 15, and I'm reading from the NIV version. Uh, David and Bathsheba. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up, got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman, a woman washing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will do not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. Thanks, Chris. As John said, it's great to be with you guys over from Bourneville today. Um, it's always fantastic just to come and see what God is doing at all the church sites across our whole church. Um, and it's just a privilege to be able to come back and to share with you guys again this morning. So thank you for having us. Um, if I could have my first slide up, that would be great. So over the last few weeks, we have been looking at mythbusters, the things in our culture, the, maybe the lies that we have begun to believe. And we're going to continue with that this morning. I don't know how many of you recognise the story that this picture is from, a quite a well-known story that you probably heard uh, as a child. So three billy goats gruff. For those of you that are familiar with the story, there are the three goats happily munching away in their field when suddenly they look across the river and see another field, a field that looks greener, more exciting, more fantastic, that they want to go and be a part of. So uh, the goats decide that no matter what the adversity, they're going to get across the bridge and they're going to get to that other field. And for most of us, we know the rest of the story. And eventually the big goat crosses the bridge, knocks the troll off down the river, never to be seen again. 
But I wonder for how many of us, when we were maybe three, four, five-year-olds, hearing that story for the first time, did we think about what actually happened to those goats two, three, four, five months down the line, when they'd been rocking out in their nice green field, having a fantastic time munching away, and suddenly they look back across the river again. And actually, the field that they came from, because no one's been eating from it, is now lush and green and fantastic again. Did they ever have that sense of, oh, that field looks great now. If only we'd stayed over there. If only we hadn't come back across to this field. And I think that story is a very simple story. It's actually a real reflection of what our society is today. And the myth that we're going to look at busting here this morning, that sense of, if only I had, then my life would be better. Oh, if only I had a bigger house, then my life would be better. If only I had uh, two holidays a year, then my life would be better. If only I had a partner, if only I had a child, if only I had another child. Some very real things in our lives that we look at and we think, if only I had that, then I'd find happiness in my life. Then I'd find joy in my life. Then I'd find that sense of peace that I'd always like to have. I don't know how many of you have been on Rightmove recently, but looking at the statistics over the last few years, Rightmove is one of the most heavily trafficked websites in the UK. Because there's that sense, isn't there, of, ah, oh, if only I could just have a look at what I could have. Uh, myself and some friends uh, moved house, not together, we moved separately, um, back in uh, last year. And chatting to them uh, recently, both of us still haven't deleted the Rightmove app off our phone. I have no intention of moving again in a very, very uh, long time because it was fairly stressful. But there's still that sense of, oh, I'm just going to keep the updates of houses in my area just to see if there's something that little bit better. And probably for a lot of us who maybe have looked at right move, we're not even in a position where we're thinking about moving. But it's just that sense of let's have a look out there at what is that could be better. And we see this sense of, oh, if only I had, creeping into our church culture as well, don't we? Oh, if only we'd had better worship this morning, then I would have met with the Holy Spirit. You're doing a great job, guys. Thank you. <laughs> if only we'd had a better preacher. I, I don't really connect with that person. If I'd we'd had that person, I'd have really heard from God. If only we had better biscuits, then it would make the after the service time much more exciting. That sense of if only I had creeping into every area of our lives. But you know, a lot of the things that we say, if only I had, actually, if we did have them, they probably would bring a bit of happiness, wouldn't they? If only I could have a really fantastic holiday, it's going to make you happy, isn't it? If only I could have a really great car, great, you'd probably enjoy driving it. Bo Derek was uh, quoted as saying, I think whoever said money can't buy happiness simply hadn't found out where to go shopping. <laughs> and it's probably true, isn't it? If we all had enough money that we could go and buy whatever we liked, we wouldn't probably be going, oh, we're just so deeply unhappy. But what we're talking about this morning is that sense of, if only I had, does it bring that sense of lasting happiness? That sense of filling the gap of where the, if only I had, actually finish and get to the end. Because although there is that sense of, if only I had, dot, 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 then my life would be happy. When we get that, are we actually happy? If only I had that bigger house, Six years down the line, you probably want another one. If only I had a partner, can very easily, 12 years into marriage, change into, if only I was married to my best friend's husband. He always does the washing up, he's really tidy. 
If only I had a fantastic amount of money or a better job. Again, six years down the line in that job. Is it quite as exciting as it was when you first got it? Do the if only I had's ever run out? Or do we just replace them with others? So we're going to turn to look at David in the passage that Chris read out to us this morning. And let's look at an example from David's life where actually the if only I had became something that took him further away from God. So the passage that Chris read to us, David and Bathsheba, quite a well-known passage. And David leading up to this point was in a fairly good place. David was in a time of great prosperity. You know, only in a few chapters before, David had come before God as king and prayed to him and said, Oh, sovereign Lord, you are God. Your words are trustworthy and you have promised these good things to your servant. David lying before God, thanking him for the promises that he had given to him. Then as we look into the following two chapters, it talks of some of the wars that David went out and fought, the victories that David, King David, led his army into. And it talks about in those chapters that David was on the battlefield. He was fighting, he was alongside his men, and they were seeing God helping them to win victory after victory. And yet here, at the beginning of chapter 11, something slightly different takes place. So in verse 1 it says, In spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Spring was the time when traditionally people went out to war. The kings led their men out to war. The rainy season had passed, so actually the um, kind of situation was much easier to go out travelling to get to war. The springtime meant there were crops in the field, so the armies had sustenance as they were out fighting. And only two chapters previously, David had led his men out to war. But here it says in that very small verse, but David remained in Jerusalem. Something in that sentence says that David wasn't quite in that place where he was. David was in a time of great prosperity. Maybe he felt like he didn't need to lead his armies anymore, that sending his chief commander was okay. We don't know, it doesn't say. But David wasn't doing what he had done before. And almost there's a little kind of warning to us all there that sometimes maybe it's in the times when we find ourselves in the greatest prosperity that our reliance on God can sometimes seem less than it was before. Now, we don't know the circumstances under which David saw Bathsheba. If you've read any commentaries or you've looked at this passage before, you'll hear lots of different opinions. So some would say that David purposefully went out knowing that he would see a naked bathing woman because of where he was walking in the palace grounds. Others would say it was just a coincidence. But if we look just at the text that we have in the Bible, we don't know. It says that David got up, he went out walking, and he happened to see this lady, Bathsheba, bathing naked. Now, in that moment, David had two choices. That David could have said, do you know what, no. I've seen this, and maybe I need to go and pray with somebody to get the picture out of my mind, whatever it is, but I can walk away. In Genesis, earlier on in the Bible, we see something very similar happening to Joseph that Joseph was in Potiphar's house and Potiphar's wife came to him and said, here I am, you can have me, I'm yours. But Joseph's response is markedly different to what we see David saying. 
But Joseph said to Potiphar's wife, how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And what I was struck by in that verse was that that Joseph didn't say, how could I sin against Potiphar, my master who has taken me into his house? But Joseph's immediate response was, how could I sin against God? How could I do this thing which would take my eyes off God and put my eyes onto something far away from him? And yet David's response is so different in that David's response becomes, oh, if only I had her. If only I could have that woman. She's beautiful, she's fantastic. And so he inquires after her, he gets her brought to his, uh, to his palace, and the rest, as they say, is history. She conceives, and then David leads himself on a path further and further away from God. That in that moment of, if only I had her, if only I had that woman, becomes a time of David lying to cover up his sin, of David moving further away from God and ultimately sending a man out to his death and committing murder. Because the if only I haves bring temporary happiness. David's if only I had was obviously a sin. But for many of us, the if only I had that, I, that you want aren't necessarily sinful things but they can be things that bring just that sense of temporary happiness. And the more, if only I had, that we have, the less are probably going to get answered. And for those that you have that aren't answered, you then can be left with a life that you're carrying so much hurt and pain, a sense of failure, a sense of regret, a sense of jealousy for those people around you who do have the things that you want. I remember being a, um, a teenager at secondary school and uh, I, I resembled Annie quite a lot when I was at secondary school. I had very tight curly ginger hair, peach glasses, and I got really badly bullied for most of my secondary school years. But I remember one year at secondary school, as I'm sure you can probably all remember uh, from being at school or if you are at school now, the thing that everybody had in my school was a Benetton bag from the shop United Colours of Benetton. Now, they were pretty rubbish bags. They were plastic duffel bags, but if you were popular and if you were cool, everybody had this bag. Well, my parents wouldn't buy me one, so I saved up my pocket money, and that summer holidays, I proudly went into the Benetton shop to buy my bag, and the only one they had left in the shop was a pink one. Now, uh, for any of you redheads out there, pink isn't always the colour that we embrace quite as much as other people might do. So I decided it didn't matter, even though I had nothing pink in my wardrobe, I would get this pink bag, because then it would be great, and I'd be popular, and I'd turn up at school, and it'd be fantastic. I hated this bag, it was horrible. (laughs) Anyway, I turned up at school in September with my Benetton bag, ready, excited to welcome myself into the popular crowd. But of course, by that point, everyone had moved on. Nobody had a Benetton bag anymore, and I was just the silly little girl who'd gone out and brought one a few weeks too late. And I was gutted. My parents wouldn't buy me another bag, so I had this hideous pink bag for the rest of that school year. Just a really, really little example, but an example of the way that that if only I had actually just lent lent itself to a place of failure and regret. Tim Queller was quoted as saying, idols cannot simply be removed, they must be replaced. So those idols, those things that we say, if only I had this, money, house, holiday, partner, child, whatever it is, they must be replaced. If you only try to uproot them, they grow back, but they can be supplanted. By what? By God himself, of course. But by God, we do not mean a general belief in his existence. Most people have that, yet their souls are riddled with idols. What we need is a living encounter with God. Because actually, that if only I had 
can so often become things that take our mind and our thoughts away from God. Because we spend so much time thinking about them, becoming consumed by them, that actually they infiltrate our thought life, rather than that sense of being daily and continual communion with God in our lives. And they can lead to broken relationships, where we look at other people and we feel jealous, or we feel that sense of failure in our own lives, that sense of us not truly living as the child of God that we are called to be. Joseph kept his eyes and his mind on God, and so he could walk away from Potiphar's wife. David kept his eyes and his mind on Bathsheba, which led him into a journey further and further away from God. Tim Keller then went on to say, you don't realize that Jesus is all that you need until Jesus is all that you have. And I know in my own life, if I really challenge myself, even in the times where we as a family, as a couple, have worked through the really hardest times, the most painful times, did I just know in that moment that all I had was Jesus? I knew I had Jesus. But I was also so fortunate that I had friends, I had family, I had my house, I had my church family around me. We recently had a family who came and spent some time as part of the Bourneville congregation who were refugees from North Korea. And they, to me, were a beautiful example of what this quote means. Because actually, in so many ways, all they did have was Jesus. One of the gentlemen in the family was born into a concentration camp in North Korea, parents put there because of their faith in Jesus. He knew life of nothing outside the concentration camp. He was beaten to a place where he almost died and he and his wife managed to escape over to England and literally the only possessions they had with them were the clothes that they wore. But spending time with them, desperately trying to translate each other's conversations on my iPhone, was actually a beautiful thing. Because what they knew was something that I was jealous for. That beautiful sense of we might only have these clothes on our back, but you know what? We know that Jesus is all that we need. I don't know how many of you recognise uh, this gentleman, Terry Waite, who was captured many, many years ago in Lebanon. He went out to do aid work over there and uh, was betrayed by a member of the party he had gone to work with, was captured, held as a hostage, and for five years of that was in solitary confinement. Terry Waite was recently uh, interviewed and asked, how was it in that time that you managed to keep your faith? that you managed to know Jesus still in your life without turning your face away from him completely. And Terry Waite very beautifully said this, I could say this in the face of my captors. You have the power to break my body, and you have tried. You have the power to bend my mind, and you have tried. But my soul is not yours to possess. There was that essential belief that my soul lay in the hands of God and couldn't be taken by others. Now we can argue to the cows come home as people have done across the generations about what the soul is. For me, it is the sum total of me. My identity, my essential being, which lay in the hands of God and couldn't be taken by others. And that very, very simple belief was enough to enable me to retain hope. Now for Terry Waite, in those five years in solitary confinement, I'm sure he had loads of if only I had. If only I had another day with my family. If only I had a chance to see the outside again. 
If only I had gone and worked with another aid organisation and maybe not be betrayed by the ones that I did. And yet, off the back of his experience, which is an extreme experience, I know most of us will never be in this place, he says, do you know what? This experience neither broke me nor consumed me. And often we have those things in our lives, don't we, that if only I had, which can distort our minds, which he says has the power to bend our minds. Because oh, if only I had more money like my friends do, if only I had more friends, if only I had that better job, that bigger house, whatever it is, and we can be left with feelings that we shouldn't carry, feelings of jealousy, feelings of pain. And we can have those really painful if only I had as well, can't we, in our lives. If only I had my health again. If only I had the person that I lost all those years ago. If only I had a partner. If only I had a child. Those things which are so painful for us to walk through in our lives. And yet for Terry Waite, he says, yeah, do you know what, there are painful things. There are those things which have the power to break us. But actually the truth is, our life has so much more purpose than those things. The truth is that yes, they are painful. And yes, we will walk through them with pain and with people alongside us supporting us. But actually there is something else that we can put our minds on and that we can fix our eyes on. In the New Testament, there's a beautiful verse in 2 Corinthians that says, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Those if only I hads are the seen things of this world. The things that this world says to you, you need to have them for you to lead a great life. You need to have them so you are not a failure in your life. But what Jesus says to us is something so much greater. Do you know what, guys? You don't have to fix your eyes on those things because you can fix your eyes on me. And you can fix your eyes on the true purpose of why you are here on this earth. I have a friend, and I have asked if I can share this story, who uh, is walking through a path in his life where he has been praying and praying to see something happen. And as of yet, he hasn't. He still prays, but there is obviously pain within that. And he said to me recently, you know, Sarah, I feel like a failure because my life doesn't add up to what often this world tells us it should be. That we get a great job, we get a great education, that we get married, that we have kids. And he said, I feel like a failure because a part of that is not in my life. And then he went on to say, which was such a profoundly beautiful and challenging thing to hear. But he said, Sarah, in all of this, as I realize that I am not matching up to what the world tells me I should be, I don't have to match up to what the world tells me I should be. Because all I need to look at is knowing that I am a son of the living God, that I'm a child of God. And yes, I might not have all these things that I think the world should tell me to have, but what I do have is an identity and a God who loves me. And that's the truth for each one of us here. That whether you have all these if only I had that have been answered or not answered, whether you don't have if only what I, any, what if only I had, and you're just really content as you are, the truth for each of us is that we are sons and daughters of a God who loves us and says your life here is brilliant and fantastic, but you are also going to have a life in eternity forever with me. That if only I had happiness, joy, peace, contentment will be answered because you will be in eternity with me. 
So how do we do that? How do we fix our eyes on Jesus? How do we fix our eyes on the unseen things? Well, that's the beauty of being part of this church family, that we can be people who get alongside one another through community groups, through life groups, through prayer triplets, who encourage one another, who give each other the permission to say, how are you doing with God? That we can be people who get stuck into the word of God. And I know for me that you know, at the moment, I don't spend as much time reading the Bible as I should. And I can look back at times when I've been really going for it with God and in a fantastic place. And actually, they have been the times when I've been able to give more time to actually getting stuck into the Bible, to praying, and actually to want more of that, to want more of being able to fix my eyes back onto Jesus. And the beautiful ending that we have as we look at the story of David and Bathsheba, and we're going to use some of David's words in Psalm 51 to respond in a moment, is that Nathan the prophet came to David and challenged him and said, what have you done? This action that you've done has turned you further and further and further away from God. And David comes and he falls to his knees and he says, I know, I have sinned. What have I done? I want to come back into this living, amazing relationship with God that I have been at other points in my life. But David had to go through a punishment. And for many of you who are familiar with the story will know that the baby that Bathsheba carried died. But we live nowadays as people who have the truth that we will not be punished because we live with Jesus having taken the punishment for us. And for many of us, oh, if only I had, aren't sinful things. They're not things we need to be punished for. But maybe for some of us here, like David, they are. And the truth is that we live in the beauty of grace, which says, you are a child of God and simply I love you. That you just need to say sorry and simply I forgive you. And just as we now respond, uh, I'm just going to invite the band to come back up. We're going to read through some verses from Psalm 51. And this was David's response to what had happened with Bathsheba. David's response of coming before God and saying, God, I'm sorry. I don't always get it right and sometimes I take my eyes off you. But God, I want to put my eyes back on you. Knowing that if I look at the seen things around me, there will always be more that I could want. And I will never find that sense of true contentment, true happiness, true peace. But actually, as I put my eyes on Jesus and I really try and grasp what it is, to know that I'm a child of God, loved unconditionally, that I can enjoy my if only I hads, whilst knowing that they aren't gonna bring the happiness and the fulfillment and contentment that knowing that truth of being a child of God can. So just as I read through these verses, it might be that you just wanna bring before God some of those things in your life that you know put your eyes on the unseen, not the seen. Or it might be that you wanna bring before God some other people that you know who actually right now are walking along a path where it's so hard for them to take their eyes off the scene and put them on the unseen and that you might want to pray for them. And after we've read these verses, we're going to continue in a time of sung worship and there will also be a prayer team over to my right who would love to pray with you, who would love to just sit, stand with you and say, God, we are bringing this to you, knowing that you hear us and knowing that you love us. So in Psalm 51, David said, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. 
Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy, the unfailing joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Father, thank you for the truth that we can fix our eyes on you, knowing that in your eyes we are not failures, knowing that in your eyes, even if all those things that we yearn for never happen, or even if they do happen, it doesn't change how you see us, just purely and simply as your son, as your daughter. I thank you that you love each one of us here so, so much.